Convince them. No. Convince me. Somebody has to stop you. If we don't, peace will be lost. And if we burn, you burn with us! Well, good morning. My name is Jocelyn Pierce, and I am the director of kids and students over at our East Lexington campus. So shout out to East Lexington. Love you guys. Miss you this morning. Um, and for most of this summer, we have been putting on our anthropologist hats and exploring pop culture in this series called Icons. Why is it that this pop art is connecting with people on such a deep level? And we've been working from the premise that there's something about these stories that is echoing the story of God. But we've also been asking whether there's something about God's story that can enhance or deepen our understanding of these stories as well. So we knew we could not do a series on pop culture without talking about what has become an explosive market. Books and movies like The Hunger Games, Divergent, Mad Max, Fury Road, and even The Maze Runner, just to name a few of the most popular, they have normalized what we call apocalyptic fiction to the point that if you want to sell a book, all you have to do is set it in an apocalyptic wasteland and give a few teenagers weapons. <laughs> is there any redeemable quality to find here? If you're unfamiliar with The Hunger Games, you might be looking at me a little bit funny. The Hunger Games takes place in a society called Panem. It's 70 years after Civil War, and the central government had put down a rebellion. And then, in order to keep the people um, at bay, they divided the nation into 12 different districts. And these districts live in varying states of poverty and in a militarized state. They are um, kept in line by a milita militarized police um, called peacekeepers. But worst of all, the capital, the central government, runs an annual Hunger Games in which volunteers from every district called Tributes are sent into an arena and um, have to fight to the death. Think of gladiators in the Colosseum, but the whole thing is live-streamed. And this is basically a tool of propaganda to keep the districts in line by watching, forcing them to watch the slaughter of their children. So when Primrose Everdeen's name is called in her district's lottery, her older sister, our hero, Katniss Everdeen, volunteers to go in her place. And as 24 children fight to survive, Katniss finds herself confronting an unjust government and an entire system of oppression. Not bad for a 16-year-old. And as popular as these stories have become in the last couple of years, 
it turns out that this trend is really nothing new. When we talk about apocalyptic fiction, we're talking about stories that take place in a setting that has completely altered the world that we live in. Whether it's an outbreak that has turned most of the population into zombies, or a World War III type of event that has left a previously flourishing region into a, a nuclear desert, Apocalyptic fiction takes place in a, in a setting where human society no longer looks the way we have previously understood it. And these are timeless and global stories, whether we're talking about the epic of Gilgamesh, Planet of the Apes, or even the Left Behind series from the late 90s and early 2000s. Do we have any Left Behind fans in here? Yeah, I thought so. Um, humans have long had an imagination for what it would look like if life as we know it came to an end. Whether it's the ancient Near East or Chicago, apocalyptic fiction asks us, if cities crumbled and societies fell apart, where would we find meaning? And these stories ask of us, if life as you know it, your carefully constructed life of your job, your housing, your family, if that were to suddenly look very different, what would it all mean? If the future you were facing looked different and possibly even bleak, Where would you find your hope? And on what would you rebuild? These are deeply human questions that the writers of scripture, humans inspired by the Holy Spirit, they ask these questions too. Earlier we heard the poetic words of chapter one of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless the writer opens with a startling proclamation of meaninglessness. Some, one commentary noted the use of the word habel, and that's not bragging because I don't know Hebrew, I just read that in a book. Um, that can be translated as absurd. It's Sisyphus rolling boulders up a hill just to watch them fall down again and have to start all over. Or as Harry Chapin once sang, All my life's a circle, sunrise and sundown, seasons spinning round again, the years keep rolling by. This teacher in Ecclesiastes holds up to the light the many pursuits of humans that we use to try to create meaning in our lives. What about wisdom? Is there meaning in that? Nope. The teacher says, wisdom is meaningless. Well, what about family? Nope, the generations will pass away. No one will remember your name. It's meaningless. Well, what about pleasure? Eat, drink, tomorrow we die. We might as well be left with that, right? Even that, the teacher says, is meaningless. The teacher takes all of our automatic answers and invites us to more closely examine the ways that we try to create meaning in our lives. 
Israel was a thriving and united kingdom under Kings David and Solomon. But the north and south divided into two kingdoms, and in time, the Assyrians and Babylonians came to defeat them. After the Babylonian defeat, many Israelites were led away into exile. And then came the crushing blow. The Babylonians destroy the temple in Jerusalem. They have gone from the chosen people of God to exiles. No land, no temple, no king, no identity. And so after they return from exile, this post-exilic period, it's a time for them to do some soul searching, for them to re-examine their relationship with God. And it's in this climate that Ecclesiastes is written. And I can't help but see so many similarities between a story like The Hunger Games and what we hear about in Ecclesiastes. As we, as we look to the future, in a rapidly changing climate, there seems to be this simmering anxiety. And I think part of that is that for many of us, what have felt like rock solid foundations of our society, they're starting to feel a little bit shaky maybe. While our churches are still standing, religious institutions get, get less reverence than they may once have. We face an uncertain future politically, economically, and culturally. This postmodern shift in the 21st century is a significant change in Western life. For hundreds of years in the modern period, meaning the time from the Renaissance up until about the mid-20th century, there was this sense that if we could just keep discovering and creating and inventing, we could solve all of the problems that life would throw at us. We could create utopia. So if the question of crisis is, who will save us? The answer of the modern age has been, we can save ourselves. And many great accomplishments and inventions have made life a lot better for a lot of people. Modern medicine, including antibiotics and vaccines, have saved billions of lives. Modern efficiencies have made life more comfortable and easier for many people. But where we once may have dreamed we'd be living on Mars by now, the reality is a little bit lackluster. <laughs> and more seriously, Technology that has led to helpful inventions has also contributed to more potent and deadly weaponry. Invention, we have realized with horror, also has the potential to, to hand out great destruction and harm as well. This new narrative of our world contends that our best efforts to save ourselves have gotten us nowhere. If the question is, who will save us? The answer is, no one is coming. 
our world has gotten smaller. It's hard to process all of the stories you come across in a day, and tragedy across the globe feels so close to home. There was a time I've heard that the internet did not exist, <laughs> and news traveled more slowly. People may have more readily heard about what happened in, on their block than what happened in Baghdad. And now, on our newsfeed, we see photos of little boys waiting in hospitals after their after their home was bombed out. In between the newest recipe from Tasty and a picture of your friend's cat wearing a hot dog costume, talk about absurd. Talk about meaningless. From half a planet away, we're watching what feels like an apocalypse. Happening, play out in the headlines, and maybe you've faced a moment like this too. Perhaps you're not living in a refugee camp or watching your people be carried out into exile. Maybe the city around you isn't reduced to rubble, but your life looked like rubble from where you were sitting. Maybe you faced a time where you were forced to ask, "What does this all mean?" A job loss with no prospects in sight, divorce papers, another college rejection letter, hearing the diagnosis, facing treatments, looking at bills spread out over the counter, not sure how you're going to make it all add up. We're reminded. That we could lose it all in an instant. In my line of work, I try to pay extra attention to things that seem to be really resonating with young people.、Um, and in my professional opinion,、uh, there seems like there's something for us to pay attention to in the Hunger Games. These stories are resonating to the tune of about 4.3 billion dollars from combined movie and book sales already. There's something in these stories that is speaking to young people, and I I haven't been able to shake the fact that in each one of these stories, there's a trend that the consequences of destruction, those burdens, are being shouldered by the young. If you take a look back at these stories, you'll see what I mean. I found the degree of violence against young people really unsettling, and at times, watching these movies and reading these books, I've wondered where is the entertainment factor in watching traumatized teenagers try to survive? There's something a bit sick about it, but. It's a story that's clicking with young people, and there may be a hard truth for us there—a hard truth about the ways that young people are shouldering the costs of our society. And it's finding an outlet in these stories. Chap Clark is a researcher and writer.、Um, he writes about youth ministry, and he wrote a book called *Hurt: Inside the World of Today's Teenagers*. He writes that today's youth are hurting, living in isolation, and worst of all, 
have been systematically abandoned by adults. That is a harsh accusation. But to test it, we've asked this question on our next-gen ministry staff. Um, so let's ask ourselves here, whether you are a teenager or you want to think back to your teenage years, who are or were the adults in your life who spend time with you who were not paid to be there? Who are or were the adults in your life who were not paid to be there? The average child probably comes into contact with a good number of adults, right? Soccer coach, math tutor, babysitter. But they're all paid. Oh yeah, you can add one more to that list. Youth pastor. <laughs> this one stings me pretty bad. Because in a society where teenagers are hurting and feel alone, when they feel more hurt and alone than usual, anyone who spent time with teenagers knows they will find any way to push you away. I will never forget the time that one of my young friends said, yeah, right, Jocelyn, you're paid to love me. I cannot describe to you how so not true that is, but I understand what they were saying, and they weren't wrong. This is my job. And at the end of the day, I'm going to be there whether anyone shows up or not. But you know who's not paid to be here? Volunteers. So I want to give a special shout out to volunteers today. And I know we do that a lot around here. And it's really easy to just brush it off or think that it's just lip service and part of what we do. But especially if you're volunteering in next-gen ministries, you will never, you will never understand the contribution that you have made. I have seen their eyes when they talk about you. You may be the only person, the only person in the life of a baby, preschooler, toddler, elementary age, middle, or high schooler, who is not there to get something from them. You will never know how much that matters, but I'm here to tell you, it really, really matters. Amen. And a natural consequence of all of this is that from a very young age, children learn that love equals performance. Who I am is what I do. They're practically the same thing. My music teacher can tell when I practice, and they're happy when I do well. My coach likes when I leave it all out on the field. My youth pastor texts me to ask if I'm coming on the retreat. Like I said, this stings for me. But nowhere have I seen this play out more than in achievement in academics. Every year, I'm, I'm more puzzled by this system that we have going here. Kids are pushing themselves so hard for grades, pushing themselves harder and further than the competition. And the competition gets stiffer every year. The data shows that kids are more stressed 
more anxious, more depressed, more prone to self-injury. There's even a commonly used metaphor. It's called duck syndrome, where you're paddling frantically underneath the surface to stay afloat, but on top, you look calm, cool, and collected. A New York Times article uh, written this past year talks about uh, how colleges are scrambling to figure out what to do with students who are cracking under the pressure to appear effortlessly brilliant, athletic, talented, and beautiful. I was talking to one young woman from Grace. Uh, she, she goes to Grace here and attends a local high school, and she just finished up her notoriously difficult junior year. Her teachers are coaching her and her friends on how to get into college, and um, attending high school in this affluent and achievement-oriented town means they have to work even harder because everyone else is as good or better. They essentially tell the students to look around. This is your competition. And if they get into BU, you don't. Does this kind of fierce competition sound familiar? But instead of killing each other, they are killing themselves to win. And it seems like we're all playing into it. This is the world our kids, our grandkids, the students that we love, this is the world that they're living in. But Ecclesiastes has a special word for the young. It says in chapter 12, remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. We've created a system where we've told kids that an important thing, a good thing, is an ultimate thing. How else will they respond when they fail? How can we as adults help to create space for them to push back a little bit, to see all, take all of these different gifts of life, wisdom and education and achievement and competition, and take them in stride because they know that there's something deeper there. There's something more to life. And it's our job as adults to create space and time for young people to remember their creator. To look past the systems that we've built for ourselves and ask what really matters. And this is where a little bit of holy reflection and maybe even some deconstruction can be a good thing. Recently, a book was published called How to Survive the Apocalypse, and it makes the point that these apocalyptic stories reflect a cultural trend toward deconstruction. It makes sense. These stories literally tear down entire cities, civilizations, sometimes even planets. Ending the story in the rubble with no hope or redemption for tomorrow is a weak spot for these stories. And if these stories are reflecting where we're at in our culture, the way I think they do, 
It's a weak spot for where we're at in our culture, too. When I was in college, I went through what I can only call a faith crisis. And I went to a Christian college. I was learning new things that I had never heard before, and I, I just couldn't make it all add up. I was well known among my Bible professors, okay, all my professors, for coming up at the end of class with tears in my eyes, barely able to sputter out, what am I supposed to do with all of this? So I went and I talked to one of my professors, and he said, the faith of your childhood, it's coming apart. It's being challenged, and brick by brick, it's coming down. I was standing in the rubble of a faith that had once been so lush and warm, but the future now looked so uncertain. What do you do when the thing that you have ordered your whole life around, when the thing that gives meaning to your past and your present and gives hope to your future starts to crack? But then he said, you don't have to be afraid of this process. Let it fall and then rebuild. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there now feeling like the pillars of your life are crumbling in slow motion. I don't want to miss this moment that Ecclesiastes opens up for us to look a little more closely, to push beyond a reflexive answer, truism, or cliche. Anybody who's been in pain knows that those kinds of answers don't really help anyway. We get these few breaths on earth, and then it's over. No matter how much money you made, or education you received, or the job titles, or whatever accomplishments, you can't take it with you. This wisdom asks us, if everything will pass away, what really matters in this life? Ecclesiastes closes this search with a simple answer. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Could it really be so simple? And what does that mean for us down here in the rubble? Karl Rahner was a Jesuit priest and a theologian in the mid-20th century, and he published a collection of sermons he gave during Lent of 1946 in Munich. Talk about post-apocalyptic. He is speaking to a community of people who are traumatized, starving, and hopeless. And he extends the metaphor of the rubble surrounding them to the rubble of the heart. He says, when your heart becomes rubbled over, let despair take everything away from you. In truth, you will only lose the finite and the futile even if it is you yourself. You yourself with your ideals, you yourself with your life's calculations, which were very intelligently, very exactly, and very beautifully ordered. You with your image of God, which resembled you, instead of the incomprehensible himself. Whatever can be taken from you is never God. 
Perhaps you've lived through one of these moments and you feel like you've made it through now and you can look back and you can see where God was with you and you rejoice in that. Maybe you've made it through one of these moments and you felt God was invisible to you that whole time and even now that you're past it, you're not sure where God was when you needed him the most. Or maybe you are just in it right now and you're standing knee deep in rubble just waiting for the dust to clear. Ronner goes on to say, don't be afraid. You see, when you stand firm and don't flee despair, then you suddenly will become aware that in truth, you are not at all rubbled over, that the emptiness is only the false appearance of God, that his silence, the eerie stillness, is filled by the word without words by him who is above all names, by him who is everything in everything, and his silence tells you that he is there. All I know is I found God in the rubble. Or maybe God found me. Ecclesiastes teaches us that when everything falls apart, it starts and ends with God. At the bottom of the well, God is there. Those years of terrible doubt, they were dark, they were uncertain, they were agonizing, but they were also necessary. I had to tear down every image of God I had composed or that had been given to me in order to really find God. And then, Knowing, when we do that and we know that we have looked our humanity in the face, we know that we're not constructing these lives just to escape our mortality. After that, we can rebuild and we can enjoy the gifts of work and wisdom and pleasure that God has given to us. A few years ago, I was invited um, here at Grace Chapel to participate in one of the Ash Wednesday services. And part of that is performing the rite of um, the cross. So as people come forward in the sanctuary, um, you take the ashes and mark a cross on their forehead or their hand, and you say the words, from dust you were made, and to dust you will return. And as I was standing up front, this little boy walked up with his parents. He was maybe four years old, and I did not really know how to handle that situation, so I kind of got down on his level and took his hand, and I looked at his parents like, is this okay? And I said it lightly, I didn't want to scare him. From dust you were made, and to dust you will return. I was so surprised at my own reaction, being choked up at the raw humanity of this moment, this flesh and blood reminder of our mortality. It's not fair to have to say that to a little boy. But then I look at Psalm 103. Like a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord gives compassion to those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed, He remembers that we are dust. 
We've spent an entire summer, six weeks, reflecting on pop culture and the whispers of God in the stories we encounter in our world. And I've wondered if these stories are our way of reaching out, asking, do I matter? Do you see me? Are you there? What does this all mean? And then maybe those glimmers of goodness and truth and redemption that we have seen in these stories are God's way of reaching out to us, telling us that he is here if only we could see it. He is in that transcendent moment of a Hail Mary pass in the final seconds of a snowy game. He is in the story of redemption of a woman, a mom, coming back from the struggle of addiction to sing on a stage. And when she sings, you just know that's the thing that she was born to do. He's a clownfish going to the ends of the earth to find his child, and he's here in the Hunger Games, the story of a 16-year-old girl who volunteered to save her sister and face certain death. From dust we were made, and to dust we will return. But in that whole dusty process, God is there. Through the days we spend so eagerly and confidently constructing our futile lives, he's there. To the days when it seems like it's all falling apart, he's there too. And the only reason I can say that is because I was there, and God met me. In the mess of despair, in so many questions, and in the continued faith of my family and community, God met me in the rubble. Can you see him in yours? Let's pray. God, thank you for these words that you include in your scriptures that teach us that these questions are not too big and they're not too scary and, and we can ask them too. God, we know that you can meet us in the rubble and you are, you are always telling us that you will. In every story that we see around us, you are there. Thank you for your presence and help us to have eyes to see it. In Jesus' name, amen.